This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's a pleasure to be with you on this uh, 13th consecutive program that we are doing on the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and we're starting to see a lot of changes going on, changes in ourselves and changes around us. We have been discussing when is the state going to reopen. Uh, our governor has uh, given us some indication of it gradually reopening. I just want you to know that I support this caution in reopening uh, because I could see that we need to wait and see what happens in other states as they reopen. And that becomes crucial as we move forward. So in this situation, it appears that caution is the best way to proceed, and I'm glad our state is moving that way. <clears throat> the weather's getting better. Everybody's out walking. It's one of the few things you could really do and good thing for you to do to get out and exercise. Uh, I've been doing that lately and walking around my area and other areas in various towns just using the sidewalks. A couple of things I've noticed, though, is I've noticed an increased amount of medical waste laying on the side. What does that mean? Gloves, right? We're seeing masks. We're seeing wipes just laying on the side. If you go to any parking lot, People just take these things off that are supposedly infected items, because you may have touched the virus, and just leave it laying there for somebody else to pick up. Uh, please be mindful. You should be mindful of all trash, but especially trash that may be infectious. The other thing I noticed, I was walking on the bike trail in Farmington, and the number of older people riding bikes with no helmets. Now, I don't know if the thinking is, well, I'm old, so it doesn't make a difference. I have news for you. It makes a bigger difference when you're old. The reason it makes a bigger difference is because as we get older, our brain shrinks, leaving more space between the brain and the skull. So when older people fall off and hit their head, is more, it's more likely that the brain will strike the outer skull and result in bleeding. Now, the real problem is, what do you do? You go to the emergency room. Now we've tied up an emergency room that's already pretty tied up for an injury that certainly could have been preventable. So really, if you want to get out there and bike, this is a great thing. And I don't see younger people without helmets. Uh, maybe it's because of the way they were raised. Uh, there are so many excuses. But if you're older person going out on a bicycle, it is imperative that you wear a helmet. One of the things I wanted to talk about, and, and I often get questions about what's going on. There are two big things going on in the press now, antibodies and vaccine. So I want to talk a little bit about the word antibody and, and what it really means. It, it's really a function of the development of immunity to an infection. 
So this immunity you develop after getting an infection happens over a period of one to two weeks. And it's, it's like three different waves of a response. The first wave is a nonspecific response. It's the white blood cells, these macrophages, neutrophils, and they all attack the area of infection. And what that does is it slows the process of symptoms and in some cases prevents symptoms. So you may never know you were sick. That's where we get into the asymptomatic carrier. So it's somebody who has the virus, but has been able to defeat it. Their immune system has been able to defeat it without producing the typical symptoms of fever, cough, and shortness of breath. The second wave of response is an adaptive response. And this is where your body produces proteins called antibodies, also known as immunoglobulins. And these antibodies bind to the virus and disable it. So that's the second wave. The third wave is what we call cellular immunity. And that's where certain cells, these T cells, come in. They recognize and eliminate any of the infected cells and virus. So those last two waves, the adaptive response as well as the cellular response, are what clears the virus out of the system. That's the cleanup crew that comes in. And what happens is now you have these antibodies in your system. Those antibodies may prevent progression of your disease if it's enough of a response, if you have it, and may prevent reinfection for a period of time. So that's why it's important to measure these antibodies to see if you have them. You have some level of immunity. If you have them, you certainly had the virus. But the important thing is we need to find out how much of a protective effect you get from those antibodies. And you measure that by doing a blood sample. There are several different ways of doing it, but it's an important test from that standpoint. And it's also important that that test be reliable. So we still come up short. And this is the big question is testing. Do we have enough tests? And there's still that disconnect between what we're being told by the federal government and what's happening in our hospitals and on the front line is, are there sufficient tests? And the answer is a resounding no. The reason being that you need these tests and they need to be performed repeatedly in people. We have not tested all healthcare workers. We have only been able to test people with symptoms. We've not been able to test other people on the front line who don't have symptoms. And a, a recent article about sports, if you're going to get back to sports, the athletes need to be tested repeatedly, meaning every day before they go into the arena or on the field, they need to be tested. That's going to take a lot of tests. The recent Harvard study said that we need between 5 million and 20 million tests per day. That's a huge number, considering the fact that we've only tested 4 million people so far. So with that, we really need to get on that, and we need to get these antibody tests out there so that they are reliable and we can tell who has the virus. 
The statistics are still astounding. In Connecticut, we've had 28,764 cases of COVID-19 and 2,339 Connecticut citizens have died. We have over a million, over 1.1 million Americans have had the virus. And sadly, over 65,000 Americans have died. Those numbers keep going up. Remember when the number was 100, we, the model was 100,000 to 200,000 people would die. Then it dropped to 60,000. This is all by August 4th. Now they're revising the number up to 74,000. By August 4th, we're at 65,000 now. Sadly, I think we're going to hit 100,000 Americans dead by summer. This day in medicine, May 2nd, 1909, Dr. Benjamin Spock was born. He's an American pediatrician and a political activist. He wrote the, babe, the, the book, Babies and Child Care. And it's among the most popular books ever written, based on the premise for mothers that you know more than you think. He also was born in New Haven, went to Yale, and I didn't know he won an Olympic gold medal for rowing while at Yale. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Gracia Moy, who is an MD, MPH, and Assistant Professor of Neurology at the University of Connecticut. She is a neurointensivist on the front line. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. The phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You can also email me during the show or throughout the week at info at alessimd.com. We're going to be taking questions in the second half of our program today and reviewing the questions that have come in during the week. My guest now on the line is Dr. Gracia Moyi. Uh, Dr. Moy is an MD and, and has a master's degree in public health. She's an assistant professor of both neurology and internal medicine at the University of Connecticut. And she has an interesting subspecialty in neurology. She is a neurointensivist. And that means she is the person on the front line in this pandemic as far as neurologists go. With that, Gracia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Let's start by, can you explain to our listeners, what is a neurointensivist? What is your job? Yes. So this is a pretty new specialty. I'm a neurologist uh, who trained in critical care. So uh, a neurointensivist is a critical care doctor that takes care of all the diseases that people would need in the ICU, but specializing in certain things such as strokes, ruptured aneurysms, brain and spinal cord injuries and uh, swelling or infections of the brain. So just explaining to everybody, I mean, I want everybody to know most of what I've learned about neurology in the intensive care unit during COVID-19 has been from being on conference calls and emails with Dr. Moyi. Uh, really? Uh, no, it's, it's true, Gracia. Uh, for example, proning. I never heard of proning till I heard it from you. Can you explain that to our listeners? What is proning and why it's become so common now when many of us haven't heard of it? Right. So proning has been used in the ICU maybe since the 1970s. Um, it's, a, it's a very old school technique. Uh, when people have respiratory failure and they're on the ventilator, 
what they noticed was if you lay people on their bellies instead of the normal way of laying on their back, uh, their oxygen levels go up. And uh, the reason that we think that happens is most of your lung tissue is kind of in, towards the back of your body. And when you're laying in bed, those little air sacs in your, in your lungs will close off over time just from gravity. And because most of the lung tissue is kind of towards the back, if you flip somebody over on their bellies, those air sacs have a chance to open up and then uh, participate more in gas exchange. So that's why we think that it helps. And it's a technique that's been used for a while. Um, because we don't see that much um, uh, lung, you know, uh, lung inflammation from diseases as much as we, as much as we have now, uh, maybe it's something that most people haven't heard of, but it's a technique we've been using for a while. Well, let's get to the issue of the neurologic complications of COVID-19. We all know about the respiratory issues and shortness of breath, but um, as time has gone on in the CCU and ICU at UConn, uh, you have reported uh, to us early on, before it's become publicized, um, issues of clotting and stroke and things such as that. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about some of these neurologic complications of what we're dealing with? Sure. So I, I think the most common thing that we've been seeing is something called encephalopathy, which is uh, just a fancy word for um, an altered mental status. Uh, what we see is uh, a lot of times when people are on the ventilator for a while or in the ICU for a while, they get this confusion and uh, difficulty thinking. Um, it seems that we see more of it in people with COVID-19, and I'm not sure why. Some of the reasons that people have been thinking is the virus can attack the brain itself, causing an uh, infection of the brain. Uh, there have been a few case reports of that um, in other countries. Um and the other, the other thing is just being on the ventilator like other uh, normal critical care patients, they can have this encephalopathy as well just from being in the ICU on top of having um, low oxygen levels. And the, the last thing that we have been seeing is increased uh, incidences of strokes. Now, we see people have blood clotting issues with COVID-19 uh, in the rest of their body. They may have clots in their veins. Uh, some of the IVs we see sometimes have clots in it. And if there's something about this disease that makes people uh, clot more, and that's something that we track every day to see what their clotting levels are, and unfortunately, that could be a, uh, leading to a, a clot in the brain, which would cause a stroke. So getting back to the encephalopathy for our listeners, can you explain some of the symptoms of that you see? Is it uh, confusion, uh, the fact that you can't wake people up? Are they having seizures? Uh, what are the actual signs of encephalopathy that um, you may see in the ICU? Sure. So um, when we have somebody on a breathing machine, we usually have them on medications to make them as comfortable as we can. As we lower down the medications, we want to wake people up to see if we can take the breathing tube out. Uh, we notice that as we bring the medications down, they may not be waking as easily as normal. So one of the things is they may be sleepy, difficulty uh, in waking up. Uh, they may not participate with us. So if we ask them to squeeze our hand or um, uh, you know, show us any signs they can understand us, they might not be able to do that as quickly or at all. And usually over time, that starts to get better. 
Um, and then what we'd like to see is if we ask people to uh, follow commands for us and we ask them to give us, give us a thumbs up, for instance, that, that tells us they hear us and understand us and they're able to uh, do what we ask. Uh, from the standpoint now, again, as I've told everybody, you are on the front line. You're, you're there. Do we have sufficient amount of tests? I mean, are we missing something here in terms of being able to test our patients? Um, I think, you know, at, at UConn, we have enough tests. Uh, different different hotspots may be running out or they, you know, sometimes they run out and get another supply. The The test that we use most often is that nasal swab. And I don't think that it's a very good test. Um, it, it has a lot of uh, incidences where you get a negative, but we really think that you may have it and we have to test people a couple of times. Um, and then finally, maybe the third time you get a positive. So I don't think it's a a great test, but that's the quickest, easiest one that we have. Uh, I know at UConn, it's it's a matter of um, a few hours or half a day that we get the test result back. Um, the blood test you're talking about might be better, and I, I'm hoping that that gets developed to be, you know, continue to, to be more widespread. I, I guess the real thing is, can we get a point-of-care test that's reliable? And, and I, it sounds like we're not there yet. Right, right. That would be great, actually. Uh, I think that some other area hospitals, they have a very quick test that they could turn around. And uh, about it's, and I don't know how reliable those are either. So it's, it's, it's going to be something that will be on the horizon, and I'm hoping we get it soon. Uh, Gracia, just in closing, what would you like the public to know uh, from your standpoint? And, and what would be the message to get out to everybody who's listening to this program? Well, number one is I, I, I agree with you. I think that we should be cautious in reopening, um, maintain social distancing, wearing masks outside when we um, when we have to go outside. Uh, the other thing I, I want to take uh, let people um, understand is if you have a sign of stroke. So um, signs of strokes are um, the mnemonic is B fast. So B is balance. E is eyes. If there's anything wrong with your balance or you have vision issues. F is face, if there's asymmetric um, facial weakness. Uh, A is arm, if you notice one arm is drifting. S is speech, if there's any problems talking. And T is time. Even in the pandemic era, we want to be cognizant that if you have signs of stroke, to call 911. We ha we've seen a lot of people stay at home, kind of, you know, maybe their arm is weak or they have a sign of a stroke, but they're afraid to come to the hospital. Um, it is a time to be cautious, but if you have a sign of stroke, that is a medical emergency, and you should still call 911 and come to the hospital. Gracia, thank you. I can't thank you enough, uh, not only as a colleague, but as a citizen here in the state of Connecticut for all you're doing. Uh, thanks thank for you. spending a few minutes with us today. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842. And 1-800-966-9842. We'll be taking your questions. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you in this half hour. Um, we're going to be talking about vaccine. Um, and as everyone has heard, probably of Operation Warp speed. Uh, the phone number is here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842.
And the reason I, I decided to have this conversation about a vaccine is because I get so many questions during the week about that and uh, decided we should talk a little bit about it. First of all, we need to understand a little bit about the nomenclature. So when we see the word SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the actual virus, whereas coronavirus-19 is the disease, and that's the same as COVID-19. So the disease is one thing. The actual virus is the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, there are a lot of issues when you're trying to develop a vaccine. Um, first, you have to know if it's safe or not. Um, the biggest question everybody asks is, when is it going to be available? And then you have to decide about the production and distribution of the vaccine. Who's going to get it first? Older people, frontline workers, military? So there are many issues that we still haven't tackled. Now, there's a difference between a treatment and a vaccine. A treatment is something you use after the disease, after someone gets sick. So, for example, you take uh, Tylenol for a fever, okay? You use different things. So there's a treatment for the disease, and we're talking about this new drug, remdesivir, which I'll spend some time on probably next week uh, because I still want to get through some of that data. But then there's a vaccine, and the vaccine avoids the disease. So that's the gold standard. That's what we need. That's what we know we need. We found that out with polio, measles, mumps. By having a vaccine, we essentially eliminate that disease. So... There are really four parts to developing a vaccine. There are four different ways, I should say, of developing a vaccine. The first one is the whole virus vaccine. That's the most elementary one, the one we've done since uh, smallpox, where you administer a weakened or dead form of the virus. Now, the risk with that is you can develop some symptoms, but it has been the most proven way of producing a long-term immunity. So that's whole virus vaccine. The next one is the recombinant protein subunit vaccine. You'll hear about this calling the S-protein vaccine. The good thing about this is there's no risk of symptoms. And what it does is it targets this S-protein that's on the actual virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And by attaching to that protein, it, is, it now attacks the infectious cells. So the protein attacks the cell and neutralizes it. The third one is the antibody vaccine. So that's a vaccine you get from antibodies. And the one we're using now is the antibodies that we know that were developed to the original SARS-1 outbreak in 2002. The last one is the nucleic acid vaccine. And this is the one everybody's banking on, literally. And this is where you inject some genetic material into a person, such as DNA or RNA. What happens is cells will absorb this genetic material. Those cells that have the new nucleic acid, the new DNA or RNA, will make proteins that are encoded to the DNA and RNA that present to the immune system causing us to produce antibodies. So it's a way of 
producing antibodies. Now, this is promising, but bear in mind, it's only been done in the veterinary medicine field. So this has never been tried on humans. And the reason we're hopeful for this, and this is the one you'll hear about uh, from Moderna, which is a big company that's banking on this. So the reason everybody's excited about it is it will not produce symptoms in someone who gets injected. It will give them an immunity that is produced by their own body, and it can be done quickly. So the United States, I just found out, has committed to purchasing 300 million doses of this, which is really pretty risky uh, because it's never been done before, and we're going to own 300 million doses of this. The actual structure for this, the DNA and RNA, were taken from the Zika virus that we've all heard about in the past. You'll remember that this is the virus that people were getting in the Caribbean, primarily, in which women would get it and give birth to children with uh, microcephaly, small heads who are severely deformed. We never, so understand, producing vaccines, we've been working on a vaccine for HIV that has never come about because of its complexity. We're still working on a vaccine for Zika. Even though we're using some of the knowledge from developing that, we still haven't produced that vaccine. And the nearest vaccine, the quickest vaccine that we've ever developed has been from mumps. And that took four years. The other thing you're going to be hearing about are phase one, phase two, phase three. These are the trials. So after you do some animal studies to find out if this works, you'll go to phase one in which you evaluate the safety and the ability for it to generate a response in a human. The next thing you'll do is phase two. And this is where you test hundreds of people to try and get the right dose. Because you don't know. You don't want to give too much or too little. So now you've got to figure out what the right dose is. That's what you do in phase two. Phase three, when you get to that, is really thousands of people because you have to look at the safety and effectiveness in a large population. So there, there are a lot of steps here, and we have to keep that in mind when we're going through to try and get this vaccine together. And there's a lot of risk. The risk is to the people who are volunteering. Let me be right up front. These people are heroes. These are ordinary people who are doing something extraordinary. They're volunteering to be injected with something that's going to alter their immune system. That is our biggest defense against disease. It's a defense against cancer. And they're willing to have theirs manipulated just so we can get through these phases and possibly save many lives. So again, these people are really taking a huge risk until we get adequate information. And I, I recommend to people, we really have to be careful in developing this vaccine because we're talking about 300 million doses of it in order to protect everyone. So we have to get this right. 
with that, we're going to take a short break. And uh, if you have questions in the last segment, I'm happy to take them at 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and in this final segment, uh, one of the big questions I get all the time since I'm involved in sports uh, as a sports medicine and sports neurologist physician is the topic of when are we going to get back to sports? And I think everyone, no one really knows that. We talked a little bit about at the outset of the show uh, about, you know, everybody wants to get back to professional sports, but you really have to have an accurate test. I think we got some new insight into that uh, from my guest, uh, Dr. Moy. And the point there is you need to be able to test and test frequently. So let's start with the fans. In a recent poll by Seton Hall, 72% of Americans said they would not feel safe attending games until there's a vaccine. So right away, we're talking about eliminating fans from this. And just testing the players when we look at this is going to be huge. Uh, Major League Baseball is talking about trying to come back. They've talked about three different divisions, all regional, and doing it without fans. So it would be interesting if baseball can get back. They're also saying they're going to eliminate the minor leagues. So they will cancel all minor league games for the year to try and get baseball back. The other thing is, what are we going to do in the fall? Fall sports are a big thing, especially football. So Dr. Brian Hainline was recently interviewed about this. Um, he is a neurologist. He's also the chief medical officer for the NCAA. And obviously, it, it's it's not going to be risk-free. But by the same token, you have to really diminish the risk for these student-athletes. I know sometimes we get caught up in the idea of college athletics, but the reason those students are there is to, to get an education. And that seems to be, we have to remember that that's the most important part. Um, I may be somewhat Pollyanna about that, but that is what it is. So what happens is um, we need to follow the guidelines in terms of a steady decline in the frequency of the infection. That's another thing. People seem to think that the virus is going away because these numbers go down. Uh, that's a mistake. Uh, the virus is still there. It's just that we have adapted to dealing with it. So there's a big difference. Us going into isolation. Remember, identification, isolation, contact tracing. We've isolated to a fair degree, and that's what's kept so many of us alive. But we still haven't identified the enemy because we don't have enough testing. And we haven't begun to contact trace. So when I see protesters out there, I, I don't argue with anybody's ability to protest, but put a mask on. I mean, really, what, why would you spread the virus? So getting back to sports, the amount of tests needed are dramatic. So every athlete will have to be tested with a point-of-care test, meaning a test that is done 
right there in the locker room right before the game. So you can do the test and get a result within minutes or no more than an hour. And it has to be an accurate test. So that would be the first hurdle to getting out on the field. And we have to keep that in mind. Uh, I don't think we're going to be seeing fans at these games, even in the fall, because even the most optimistic people are saying we're not going to have a vaccine at the earliest in January. Um, I think it's going to be later. And we really have to get the details about which way this virus is acting and how it's moving before we start opening up sports. And then once you open it up, it becomes apparent that you have to now get the buy-in from fans who are still saying, probably not going to go. So it's important that we start thinking about a point-of-care test. And we need to keep that in mind as we start going through literature and hearing more about this. Um, testing still becomes a huge issue in front of us. The other thing we often hear about now is um, in terms of isolation, people want to know how long, how long do we have to do this? And we have to do it as long as we want to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Yeah, we want to get back to work. And I think that that's what's going on. We're starting to move towards going back to work to some degree. But it's going to be different. Our lives are going to be different. And that's the beauty of being able to adapt to so many ways of doing something. So among the questions um, I get a lot is, will the virus still be here in the fall? And the answer is yes. But hopefully we'll know how to deal with it a little bit better and be able to keep those numbers uh, down to some degree. The other thing is we hear a lot about false positives, false negatives, in terms of testing for the virus. And that's where we get down to this accuracy or inaccuracy of many of the tests. As Dr. Moyi tested, you know, attested to is we often have to do the test twice and still get negative results in people who we suspect highly of having this. And that's been a, a huge issue in terms of uh, going forward. The other thing that's become increasingly apparent is that in developing this vaccine, as much as many people are against the idea of globalization, right? Globalization is we don't need anybody else. Well, it's become readily apparent that in order to develop this vaccine, in order to defeat this virus, we really need other countries. We need cooperation from other people, and we need to learn from them. Now, what forum we do that in is another issue, right? The World Health Organization has been the forum for doing that, and it has been a key item in moving forward. It's gotten a lot of bad press lately, and I think history will have to address that. But we do need to, need to have a forum going forward. We need to have great minds. And I'm hoping one of the things that comes out of this is some of the children, some of the young people living through this 
will realize the importance of establishing a career in medicine and in science. It may open new doors for many young people. And I'm hoping so, because I think that's where the future is uh, for all of us. With that, I just want to remind everybody to try and be kind to each other. Now, you know, we're getting into the usual thing of who believes what, who's going to protest what. Uh, it's only when we come together that we're going to fix this problem. And it's a tremendous problem, but I have no doubt that we can go forward and, and fix it. With that, I want to thank my studio producer, Mike Olko, who's been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week on Healthy Rounds, I want to spend a lot of time looking at the data and getting back to you about treatments, right? Where are we with hydroxychloroquine? We haven't heard that word in a while. What have those studies shown? Let's talk about remdesivir, the antiviral that was designed for Ebola, and we now think maybe hope may be hopeful for treating this. That would be great, but I got to be honest with you. So far from what I've read and looked at, I'm not convinced. So if you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast. Just download it free from iTunes. Please remember to help save lives. I usually say you can do that by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor, and you certainly can. But I'm going to leave you with this. Please help save lives by wearing a mask when you're in public. Thank you for your time. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.